True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Go back over 50 years to when there was another corona taking lives. Hi, I'm your host, Cambo. Grab that beer, pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So, hi, Islanders. Well, <laughs> the world is gripped in a panic at the moment over this coronavirus or COVID 19. So, I thought, why not do a case about another deadly corona? No. Not the Toyota Corona. This is Juan Corona, serial killer. But first, I'm back from Thailand. I'm currently undergoing 14 days mandatory isolation, which is like prison, but without the free food. But then again, I don't have to worry about dropping the soap. But first up, thanks to everybody. We've passed the first YouTube milestone of 500 subs, and I will do this episode on video as well. They are they tend to be a little bit different. It's not just the audio stripped out of the video. So check it out if you like. And of course, get that subscriber count, count up if we can. Now, I've also got some great location shots from my recent travels. So that'll look good. Tonight, I'll be referencing the Sacramento Bee, the San Francisco Examiner, New York Times, the Miami News, the Battleboro Reformer, the Idaho State Journal, the DeviationDiariesBlogspot.com, Court Records, and it's a little bit cross-referenced with a piece I found online called Juan Corona, the Machete Murderer, information researched and summarised by Tammy Bogner, Holly Bricky, Melissa Bowles, Doug Crowder, and they're from the Department of Psychology at Radford University. G'day, everybody out at Radford University. So tonight we go to Feather Feather River in Sutter County. I think it's Sutter County. I don't think it's Sutter County. California. And the year is 1971. Anyway, we've got Juan Vallejo Corona, born February the 7th, 1934, at Ortland, Yalisco, Mexico. He was a solid, dark-haired, dark-eyed man with heavy brows. He was about 5 foot 11 and rugged at 200 pounds or somewhere around 100 kilos. He could hardly speak any English, not that many would know, as he rarely spoke to anyone in town. He went to church and the Reverend Joseph Bishop, what a name for a reverend, he said that Juan was a good man. Now, we really don't know much more about Juan Corona other than he had eight brothers and a mother named Candida. Now, that's nearly two six-packs of Corona. Juan Corona illegally crossed the border into the USA from Guadalajara, Mexico, when he was 15 in 1949. He stayed in the El Centro area in Southern California, to work on a farm. Now, this is in 1949, aged just on 15, 16. In 1951, he moved to Sacramento and worked as a member of the construction crew, which built Folsom Dam. 
One of his older brothers, Natividad, well, he was a half-brother, was already living in the U.S. at Marysville near Yuba City after immigrating in 1944 because of the labour shortage in World War II. In 1953, Natividad suggested Juan move into the area and work on the local ranches. Juan did this, and he would meet and marry his first wife, his first wife, Gabriella Hermosillo, in October 1953. I'll get this out. Now, Juan had a quick temper and could be set off quite easily. In fact, when he would get into a rage at home, they would need to take ropes, tie him down until he chilled out. So that's a bit weird. It was stated in court records that he had fits of temper, that he had beaten his wife, and that he had little use for white transient labourers, which we'll get to later. In 1955, there was a huge flood in the area, and it overcame the West Levee, killing 74 people. Now, this traumatised Juan Corona, and from what I can see, he was schizophrenic, and after the floods, he would go on about how everyone had died during the flooding, and he was also reading from the Bible and writing things down all the time. He moved to Live Oak in 1956 and became a farm labour contractor. His brother Natividad was worried about him and got him committed to the Jewett State Hospital at Auburn and he was aged around 22. He was diagnosed as being confused, disoriented and suffering from delusions and hallucinations. Here they would perform shock treatment on Juan and in April of 1956 they discharged him as being cured. He then got deported. A mutual friend would introduce Juan Corona to his eventual second wife, Gloria Marino. Gloria was born in Mexico in 1935. She became a legal secretary and worked for the father of Mexican President Luis Echeverria Alvarez in the Palace of Justice in Guadalajara. She immigrated with her family to the Live Oak area north of Yuba City in 1957. Now Juan, he marries his second wife Gloria Marino in Our Lady of Guadalupe Church in Live Oak on July the 4th, 1959 and they would end up having four daughters. Juan made his way back to the USA in 1962, this time with a green card. Okay, now there's some conflicting stories out there with conflicting timelines and locations. Now, I've I've gone with what made the most sense, as this part, his previous life, isn't all that important. Now, Juan and his brothers, Natividad, Felix and Pedro, they all started in the fields but progressed to become labour contractors, recruiting workers for the growers, taking 10 to 15% of their pay, and they'd also sold them food. In March 1970, Corona was again admitted to Jewett State Hospital for treatment. Now we get to 1971. Now this is where things get a little crazy. After the spring rains in 1971 started early and lingered later than usual, the work in the field slowed up. This, of course, caused problems not only for the labourers, but for those that made their living living contracting them out as Juan Corona did. Also, mechanisation had replaced most of the tomato harvesting staff required and mechanical peach pickers were being introduced. The Sullivan Ranch, where Juan supplied labour, 
had also bought one of these peach pickers, replacing 40 to 45 men that had previously worked there. Now, earlier in the year, Juan Corona had applied for welfare at the Suda County office, but was turned down because he had more than $600 in assets. So, if he was in financial strife at the start of the year, the weather and the mechanisation of agricultural harvesting really put a strain on Juan Corona's mental state. On May the 4th, 1971, Marysville police stop and question Juan about the missing Sigrid, or Pete Byerman, a homeless guy that had been last seen by his friend Roy DeLong getting into Juan's van. Juan denied any knowledge of his whereabouts. DeLong was quoted as stating, That's the last time I ever saw that guy, Pete. He was one of the best guys I ever knew. On May the 19th, 1971, at 10am, a farmer, Goro Kagahiro, noticed a freshly dug hole about two feet deep and six feet long, but didn't think too much about it until 6pm in the afternoon when he saw it filled in. He called police to come and have a look as he thought it may have been stolen property buried there. When the sheriff came out and started digging, they found a toe. The body would be identified as Kenneth Whitaker, 40, from San Francisco. Whitaker had been dead probably less than 24 hours. On Tuesday the 25th of May at the Jack Sullivan Ranch, about half a mile or a kilometre up the road from the first burial site, a farm worker noticed a mound in the field while, while riding the tractor. He thought it looked like a grave and called the sheriff, and yep, it was a grave, but that's not all. They would find four more graves close together, about three quarters of a mile up the road, and three other bodies buried in the opposite direction. At four o'clock in the morning of May the 26th, 1971, police went to Corona's three-bedroom home in 768 Richland Road, Yuba City, with a warrant for his arrest. They'd found store receipts in a couple of the graves with Juan Corona's name on them. One was a receipt for $25.63 from a produce and meat firm, Del Perro Brothers, made out to Juan, and this was found in the grave of John Doe number 3. When they entered the house, they woke up Martha, the 10-year-old daughter of Juan and Gloria, to translate the warrant. She was terrified as two police pointed rifles at Juan's head as he kneeled down handcuffed. She read out how certain men had been murdered, their bodies buried in fruit orchards, and they were here to arrest the murderer Juan Corona. Initially, he would be charged with nine counts of murder, but further searches of the surrounding area would turn up 25 bodies in total. Two other bodies would be buried with a bank slip in the name of Juan Corona. I mean, fuck's sake. All these murders occurred between the 1st of February 1971 and May the 19th, 1971. That's just four months. Now, a bit from some court records, and as I always say, I will just edit these for flow. Of all 25 victims, all but one had incurred one or more chop-type or hacking-type injuries to the head. The chop wounds were of two kinds. Slashing wounds inflicted probably with a light weapon such as a knife, and severe chop wounds caused by a heavy instrument such as a bolo machete. 
The latter wounds typically appeared in a horizontal direction covering the face, head and ear and were inflicted with a force of such magnitude that they cut the bone and severed the upper and lower parts of the skull. The other common pattern was the infliction of stab wounds in the upper left-hand chest of the victims by using a cutting instrument which penetrated the heart or lung and severed the aorta, leading from the heart to the lungs. The common modus operandi was further bolstered by the circumstances that the victims were buried in the same general area in a manner which was likewise similar, if not identical. Almost without exception, each of the victims was lying on his back with his hands over the head, chest or stomach and his shirt or other clothes pulled over the head. Moreover, in the in at least seven graves, the underwear of the victims was pulled off or removed, exposing the penis and genital area, giving rise to the inference that the crimes may have been sexually motivated and that the perpetrator may have been a homosexual. Because of the salient likeness of the injuries inflicted, the instrument used and the mode of burial, there was consensus on the part of all concerned that all the crimes charged were committed by the same person or persons. Autopsies revealed that all the victims had empty stomachs. Now maybe, I reckon this is because they were held for a while before being raped and killed. None of the victims had been reported missing, as they were all transient workers or lived on Skid Row. Now this did make initial identification of the bodies difficult, with four of the 24 victims remaining unidentified. A search of Juan Corona's house uncovered a bolo machete, a two and a half wooden club, now I'm assuming that's a two and a half golf club, wooden club, with possible bloodstains on it, a post hole digger with mud and hair on it, two ledger books. Now, these ledger books apparently contained the names of 34 alleged victims the dates on which they were presumed murdered and designations of the burial sites. So they discovered 24 bodies, but there may, may have been a lot more. Evidence in the form of a plaster cast taken from tyre impressions found at the Whitaker's grave showed that the tracks were made by the same kind of tyres that were on Corona's van. In the 25th grave, the burial ground of Joseph Maxack the police discovered a number of sundry items. Now that was a candle holder, pieces of a broken mirror and a child's sock. Now these apparently all belonged to Corona. And more importantly, two Bank of America deposit slips. Now printed on the slips was 1V Corona 768 Richland Road, Yuba City, California. In the kitchen of the Labor House at the Sullivan Farm, there was a glass candle holder sitting in the sink. It was 8 or 10 inches tall and about 2 or 3 inches in diameter. The candle holder was made of red, green and yellow coloured glass and there was writing on it in Spanish. The broken pieces of the glass candle holder found in the 25th grave bore great similarity to the candle holder seized in the mess hall. The colours, the design and the Spanish inscription of the broken glass all indicated unquestionable resemblance to the candle holder found during the search of the mess hall. In the corner of the mess hall was a locked metal disc. In the lower left-hand drawer was a 9mm Browning automatic pistol in a case. 
The gun, which had been purchased by Corona in 1967, was loaded, cocked, and had one round in the chamber and three in the clip. And the safety was off. The searching officer removed the clip and ejected the shell from the chamber. It's worthy to note that the 11th victim, William Camp, was shot in the head with a pistol. Chemical analysis of the bullet in the head of that victim indicated that it had been manufactured by Remington, that it could have come from the same batch of bullets that were found in Juan Corona's desk and that it matched bullets fired from Corona's gun in several respects. In the drawer with the gun was a long knife with a silver and black laminated handle. The knife was in a sheath and on one side of the knife blade were the words Tennessee Toothpick. There appeared to be coagulated blood on the knife near the guard. A hunting knife in a leather sheath was found on the top shelf of some storage shelves along the west wall of the mess hall kitchen wrapped in a Spanish magazine. The handle appeared to be laminated leather. The knife was lying between the pages of a magazine and could not be seen from the floor. Hanging on a nail in the kitchen were several receipts, including receipts from the Del Perro Brothers market made out to Juan Corona and signed at the bottom, Juan Corona. A subsequent search of the mess hall additionally produced a universal brand V6 ink pen that wrote in six different colours. Five of these coloured inks would be found in his death ledger, but we'll get onto that later. The additional circumstances shedding light on Corona's contact with the victims and his involvement in the crimes are as follows. Brian Shannon, another labour contractor in the Marysville area, testified that on May 3 or 4, 1971, he met John Henry Jackson, victim 21, who was looking for a job. Before they could come to any arrangement, Corona came by. After a short discussion, Jackson was hired by Corona, who drove him away in his pickup truck. This was the last time Shannon saw Jackson alive. A similar occurrence took place on May the 12th, 1971. On that occasion, Shannon was talking to Smallwood, Riley and Allen. They were victims 15, 16 and 17 in Lower Marysville. Corona drove up in a pickup truck and asked Smallwood, Allen and Riley if they wanted to work for him. They accepted the job offered by Corona and all left in his truck. Shannon never saw any of the three men again. On April 10th, 1971, about 3.30 or 4pm, James Purvis, a farm labourer, was walking on the road between Yuba City and Marysville. Juan drove alongside the road and asked Purvis if he wanted to work for him for a couple of hours. Purvis refused and Juan drove away after some hesitation. Now this is April 10th. Now, evidence would be introduced at his trial showing that Juan, in fact, did not start providing labourers for thinning until about May the 6th. Jose Ramiro Rea testified that on the evening of February 24, 1970, he was approached by Juan near the Guadalajara Cafe. Rea was with one Nick Ramirez. Juan asked the two men if they wanted to do some pruning work on the Sullivan Ranch the next day. On answering that they did not know where the Sullivan Ranch was, Juan volunteered to take the two men to the ranch in his pickup truck at that late hour. The thing is, Juan Corona offered Raya and Ramirez the pruning job on the Sullivan Ranch, but he was neither contracting nor working at the ranch and in fact had not had a contract for pruning since the winter of 1968-69. to 
Corona's activity around the grave sites were further described by two eyewitnesses, Jacob Compton and Ernesto Garcia. Compton was an engineer for the California Department of Water Resources, working on the Sullivan Ranch from April through to June 1971. On April 28 or 29, Compton saw a light-coloured van in the area. The van showed up twice on the same day. At mid-morning, he saw the van come out of the brush into the bend of the river, somewhat to the west of Gravesite 21. In the afternoon, Compton saw the van travelling along the road in the same area. Garcia testified that in April 1971, he was operating a tractor with a chisel in the South River Bottom Prune Orchard. Corona was working on the ranch that day, cutting trees near the camp. Corona approached Garcia and asked him how deep the chisel would go. Garcia told Corona the chisel went about three feet deep. Juan Corona put his hands next to the chisel and marked the dirt line, which showed how deep of the chisel had penetrated the ground. There was also the testimony of Miss Beatrice Valdez, Juan Corona's neighbour in Yuba City. Mrs Valdez worked in a yard almost every evening during January and February 1971. She observed him driving past almost every evening somewhere between 6.45 and 7pm and returning within two to two and a half hours. Juan did not always use the same vehicle. Sometimes he drove the Impala, sometimes the van or the pickup. On returning, he usually washed his vehicle. However, as Miss Valdez often noticed, the job done by him was not complete. Instead of washing the car in full, he frequently did no more than hose out the inside of the vehicles. So pretty much Juan Corona was fucked. He tried to defend himself by saying he wasn't the killer, but it was his brother Natividad. Now this is where his defence here gets some credence, because on the 25th of February 1970, at the Guaja La Jara Tavern in South Maryville Skid Road, which, by the way, was owned or operated by Natividad Corona, Juan Jose Rea was attacked in the restroom. Now, from what I can see, Natividad came onto Rea and his affections were rebuffed. Affection, erection, I don't know. Anyway, Rea would be found in a pool of blood, hacked about the face by a machete. His His lips were cut off and his brain was leaking out. But Rea survived and testified in a civil suit that Natividad, whom he described as a homosexual, had made advances to him. The police report said Natividad was a queer, and if someone talking to Juan Corona about this subject directed at his brother or not, Juan would go into one of his fits of temper. Now at first Juan said he was in Mexico at the time of the attack, but later admitted he was at the cafe that night. So Rea was awarded $250,000 against Natividad. So, either Natividad attacked Rea or he took the heat for his brother, brother Juan. Anyway, Natividad transferred all his property to his family and took off back to Mexico and Rea was never able to claim the money. So, we've got this asshole, Juan Corona. He has a hot temper, he bashes his wife, he has big issues with gay people and he's in a bit of financial situation because of the weather and the mechanisation of the agricultural activities in the area. He's then turned down for welfare, 
and he has a history of mental illness, and he's had shock treatment, which I can only imagine would be terrifying. This treatment was because he was delusional and hallucinating. He then goes on to pick up potential workers, and it looks like he goes on to rape some of them, mutilates them all, but they all end up dead. It would take a jury 45 hours to find him guilty on 25 counts of first-degree murder. In fact, this was so well covered by the media that they held the trial 60 miles away or so, which is about 95 kilometres, in Fairfield, California, because it would have been too difficult to get a jury selected in Yuba. The judge, Richard Patton, sentenced Corona to 25 terms of life imprisonment to run consecutively without the possibility of parole. In January 1974, Gloria divorced Juan. Yay! Juan did get a second trial in 1978, but basically there was no change at all in the outcome. Corona died on March the 4th, 2019, aged 85, so last year. He'd been denied parole several times. Well, Islanders, why the fuck, why the fuck Juan decided to go all homicidal on his workers, I really can't say other than that he was suffering from delusions and he was under a lot, of the, a lot of stress at the time. I think he was also battling his whole life over his sexuality. The fact that it looked like he raped most, if not all, of his victims, we don't really know, they were all male, yet got so upset when anyone mentioned his brother was gay. Now this looks like he wanted to take all that sexual identity anxiety and hate out on others. He was done for 25 murders, but because of the transient nature or the fact that his victims were from Skid Row, there may be many, many more. And of course, there are theories that he did murder many more people. Four of the victims are still John Doe's. So Juan Vallejo Corona was in the end just fucking scum. And he did at least get on that karma bus to Boomfuckalungo. He preyed on the most vulnerable, taking out his anxieties on them in the most horrific way. But at least this time, the justice system sorted him out. And let's hope he burns in hell. So, I'll read out the names of those he brutally murdered. There's John Joseph Haluka, 52. Sigurd E. Pete Byerman, 62. There's John Doe, the fourth victim found. John Doe, the seventh victim found. There's William Emery Camp, 62. Now, he was the one who was shot in the head with a 9mm. There's Clarence Hocking, 53. There's John Doe, the tenth victim found. John Doe, the twelfth victim found. There's Albert Leon, or Scratchy Hayes, 58. Warren Jeremy Kelly, 62. John Henry Jackson, 64. Joseph J. Maczak, 54. Mark Beverly Shields, 56. Donald Dale, or Red Smith, 60. James Wiley Howard, 64. Sam Bonafide, also known as Joe Carivo, he was 55. Edward Martin Cup, 43. Charles Levy Fleming, 67. Jonah Raggio Smallwood, 56. Albert J.T. Riley, 45. There's Lloyd Wallace Wenzel, 60. 
Paul Buell Allen, 59. Raymond Rand Muchachi, 47. Kenneth Edward Whitaker, 40. Melford Everett Sample, 59. That's a lot of names. That's a lot of people he killed. And like I said, they reckon he did at least nine more. What do you reckon, Islanders? Crazy that all of a sudden this guy starts killing people. He probably got such a kill streak because none of the victims were reported missing, being vagrants or transient workers or whatever. If it had been schoolgirls, then he would have been shut down a lot faster. So I hope that filled in some time for those in isolation just like me and it looks like there are a few of us at the moment. Look out for the video version of this on YouTube. Plus, I'll redo a few of my oldest episodes on there as well. Now we get to Patreon. A big shout out to all the past and present patrons in the island. There's also some new ones. There's Kelly Owen. Thanks so much, Kelly. Scully Clawbauer. Thanks, Scully. There's David Smith. G'day, Dave. We had a chat the other day. Now, I don't know if I... (laughs) I've said these, but there's Tom Sheridan as well. Thanks, Tom. Anne-Marie Wallace, Timothy Granger and Kat. Thank you so much. As you know, True Crime Island is totally listener-supported, so you won't hear ads. Just occasional promos for podcasts I think you should check out. We got one today. To become a patron, go to patreon.com forward slash Island, and for as little as a dollar a month, you too can help support the island. I will be emailing reward qualifiers this week for this month, a little bit late, so look out for the email if you qualify for a reward. Now, if you'd like to buy me a beer via PayPal, you can do that as well. Then don't you go to donate.truecrimeisland.com and cheers, as Julie Banks did last week. Thanks, Julie. I had a big bottle of beer. If anyone finds they need to pause their Patreon for whatever reason because of these uncertain times we're in at the moment, look, just go ahead, please. There's no hard feelings at all. I don't want anyone overstretching. The island will still be here each week or most weeks. I sometimes have to miss a week, especially when you're getting married. I have merch at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Thanks for those who bought stuff. And don't forget, if there's any issue with any of the merch, let them know. They will sort you out. And also let me know if you've got any printing problems or whatever. They've replaced a couple of my shirts. They do it straight away. But you need to get it in within a couple of months of uh, getting the issue. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing, also by sharing it with your friends and family. That would be lovely. Use the hashtag BoomFuckalunga in your social media if you like. All the links, including social media, are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. Best to email me if you want to have a chat. Don't forget, of course, there's the YouTube channel as well. Now, today I will be running a promo for my besties, buddies, Melbourne, Barney and Tara from Bloody Murder. They've just launched on a new platform. So, listen in at the end. I haven't even listened to it yet, so I hope it's it's okay. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom,
Is listening to true crime podcasts all the time getting you down, but you just can't stop? Try listening to Bloody Murder. We're an Australian comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known murder cases from Australia and around the globe. We use black comedy as a means to tell horrifying true crime stories. But our humour is respectful and never at the expense of victims or their loved ones. Our episodes cover everything from Australian gangland figures like Chopper Reed to black widows and women who kill disputes between neighbours that turn to murder identity theft killings bushrangers and serial killers you won't have heard covered elsewhere. We get straight into the case with no banter or chit-chat beforehand. That's because the podcast is about true crime, not what we had for lunch. Our fresh, well-researched episodes are released every Monday. Bloody Murder has been nominated for four Australian Podcast Awards. We've been going for over three years now. So we have loads of episodes for you to binge. You can listen to Bloody Murder on Spotify and any of your favourite podcatchers.